BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, December 11th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We never find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show or on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I like to think of myself as the American dream. Uh, my father grew up in a small village in India, worked hard in school, earned scholarships to universities. Succeeding there, he was able to gain entrance to graduate school in the U.S. He turned that subsequent Ph.D. into a career in industry, eventually starting a company that employed hundreds in a former Rust Belt town. And that created a wonderful life for me. Not always easy, but comfortable by any measure. That sense that education, hard work, perseverance has been embedded in my family's DNA ever since. And you hear every politician going back to Reagan using the phrase, the American dream, to reference that idea. In 2016, we heard a different take on the American dream, when then-candidate Donald Trump extolled that the American dream was dead, that so many were working harder and longer for so much less. And he was right. Recent economic studies showed that the prospect of children earning more than their parents has fallen from 90% to 50% in the last half century. This erosion of the American dream and equality of opportunity is the focus of this week's guest work, Raj Chetty. He's a celebrated Stanford economist focusing on using empirical evidence, often big data, to inform the design of more effective governmental policies. His latest work is focused on the causes of inequality and examinations of policies that could lead to change. You can check it out for yourself at equality-of-opportunity.org. Raj's work is off-cited by both Republicans and Democrats on numerous issues. Raj recently had a paper out focusing on the innovation economy, a hot topic here in Silicon Valley. He uses the phrase lost Einsteins to describe the people left behind by that economy. By that meaning, he used newly available data linking patent information, tax records, and test scores, and was able to examine how income, racial uh, background, gender, and even geographic inequality are limiting potential discoveries. One finding that still leaves me gobsmacked, people from high-income backgrounds, even with 
low math test scores generate as many patents as the top performing people from low income backgrounds. It made me reflect on my own version of the American dream and what it might take to stop that from disappearing. So with that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Raj Chetty. This episode was sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ believes the best way to improve health is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. So they use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33%, wow, that's a lot, on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ, and this is backed by science Recent studies show that physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, 56% lower risk of heart disease. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash inquiring or mention the promo code inquiring when you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's healthiq.com slash inquiring to get your free quote. And today's episode was brought to you by Masterclass. Imagine if you could learn how to write compelling dialogue from a master like Aaron Sorkin. Masterclass produces online classes taught by the best in the world. Choose from over 30 masters across a wide range of fields such as writing, cooking, film, acting, so many more. I really enjoyed the Steve Martin Masterclass. It was one of the best few hours I spent over the last couple months. Just in time for the holidays, Masterclass has launched the All Access Pass. With the new All Access Pass, you can unlock every class from over 30 masters, all for the price of two. Inquiring Minds listeners can get the All Access Pass at masterclass.com slash inquiring. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash inquiring. That's masterclass.com slash inquiring. Raj Chetty, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. This book, this new paper on Lost Einsteins really caught my eye, partially because the data that it's built upon represents something totally new that I haven't seen before, which is this linkage between tax records and school district data. So you're able to link uh, a few things that haven't been done before. Can you talk a little bit about the data underlying this report first? Yeah, absolutely. So this new study, which looks at the lives of 1.2 million inventors in America, is really made feasible by availability of new data, the feasibility of linking a set of different data sets that previously hadn't been linked. So as many people might know, patent records in the United States are public record. So you can see who filed for a patent, what technology class it was in, who the inventors were, what company they worked for, and so forth. But patent records by themselves have very limited information on the scientists and inventors themselves. Even basic things like what's the person's gender or how old are they or, you know, let alone more complicated things like what was their family background and so forth. And so because of that limitation, we actually have known very little about who inventors in America are. Simple questions like, what fraction of inventors in America are women today? Even answering that simple question is quite hard. So what we do in this study is take the publicly available patent records and link them, working with uh, collaborators at the U.S. Treasury, to uh, tax records, information from income tax returns and other tax filings, 
that then allow us to learn a lot more about the backgrounds of these inventors, where they came from, what their gender is, how old they are, what their careers look like, and so forth. And so that data set, which after linkage is de-identified and studied in an anonymous way, uh, really opens up the pathway for this kind of analysis. And give our listeners a, a sense of the size of this data set uh, over time, because the patent office goes back you yeah. know, hundreds of years, but you you didn't you focused on a, yeah. a much more narrow time window. That's right. So we look at the data from 1996 to 2014. So all patents filed in that window, we start in 1996 because the tax record data we work with start in 1996. So that's why we're not able to go further back. But, you know, that's a pretty long time span, which, as I mentioned earlier, allows you to study 1.2 million people who applied for or were granted a patent between 1996 and 2014. And you're using patents as really a proxy for innovation. The idea of inventors spur innovation and all of our uh, political discussions and economic discussions seems to focus on how do we have more innovation in our economy. Just one quick question about the patents itself. Not all patents are successful. Yeah. So how do you sort of separate good patents, quote unquote, yeah. from from the bad? Is that yeah. is that really addressed here? Yeah, that's a good good question. Sure. So, you know, I think the way to think about it is most people agree that innovation is a good thing and that innovation really lies at the heart of economic growth, discovering new drugs, new technologies and so forth. The question that is more debated in the literature is whether patents are a good measure of innovation. Not all patents, as you pointed out, are necessarily successful inventions. And also the converse, not all inventions are patented because people sometimes want to keep things secret precisely because patents are public record. So to deal with those issues, we there are kind of two approaches we take. First, we look at the subset of patents that are very highly cited. So the patents that are most impactful in terms of science uh, as judged by citations, which you know is a standard metric of influence. Uh, as a second approach, we look at the mechanisms through which we're finding results, for example, big differences in innovation rates between kids from low-income and high-income families. And we show that the type of mechanisms we document, for instance, the importance of exposure to innovation, they're unlikely to be driven by other artifacts like who goes through the legal process of filing a patent and things like that. It really seems to be something more about learning about innovation if you think about the set of results as a whole. Let's dive into some of the the key findings from this latest paper because I was struck by just the the initial brunt of what was presented. It showcases that uh, the differences that we see based on income background, mm-hmm. on race and gender just simply can't be explained away uh, through simple measures. So, uh, and I think the one that stuck out to me the most is this idea that if you're in the top 20% of income mm-hmm. earners, uh, but did poorly in test scores mm-hmm. in school, particularly third grade test scores, you still had the same invention <clears throat> rate as somebody that came from uh, a low economic background, uh, but were high performers on tests. Yeah. Essentially, your wealth background with equated that difference in skill. That's exactly right. So, I mean, let me just step back a bit and provide some more context on the findings. So the first main finding uh, is that kids from higher income families are much, much more likely to become inventors than kids from low income families. Take one statistic. If you happen to be born to parents in the top 1% of the income distribution, you're 10 times as likely to have a patent 
as kids born to the median, a family below the median of the income distribution. And that that fact unto itself is not surprising. We've known that from yes. from different sources, but the breadth of that gap, I think, exactly. Was a I mean, bit I think people have loosely understood that people from uh, advantaged socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to pursue all types of professional careers, not just science. Seeing the magnitude of the gap, and I also think the nature of that gap is very important. So what I mean by that is it's not just, you know, being in a family earning $100,000 versus $30,000 a year seems to make a difference. There's actually a really sharp gradient even among quite high-income families. So going from the 95th to the 98th or even the 98th to the 99th percentile is associated with a much higher probability of becoming an inventor. And the reason I think that's important is because it shows you the mechanism is unlikely to be just about resources because you would think, you know, once you're at in the top 5%, being in the top 1% instead of the top 5%, it's not like you can't afford things, you know, when you're at the very top uh, to begin with. And so it really seems to be about something beyond literally whether, um, you know, money plays a role here. And so while that finding has some nuance to it, which mm -hmm. is surprising, I think I can intuit that that is a result. But then when you start to delve into some other areas yep. like race and gender, yeah. I think more is exposed in ways yeah. that I was expected. So let, let's start with race because yeah. that's so, complicated. It, I would think that would be a complicated issue to, to track even over that that relatively short time period. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we then do an analogous analysis by race and ethnicity. So asking whether... Uh, kids of different races and ethnicities patent at different rates. And once again, you find really sharp disparities. This is also loosely known that we have an underrepresentation of minorities in, in science and technology. Again, I think the magnitudes are striking. Among blacks and Hispanics scoring at the very top of, say, their third grade math class, you see substantially fewer kids becoming inventors than among whites and Asians. And so that, again, echoes the disparities we see by income on, on a different dimension. A common theme in both of these disparities is that they are not, as you alluded to earlier, explained by simple differences in ability to innovate or something like that. And so one piece of evidence we have that suggests that's the case is we link in data on all kids who went to New York City public schools. So we have information on their test scores in elementary school between third grade and eighth grade. And so for about 2 million kids, we're able to track uh, their performance in school and then see how that relates to later outcomes, including innovation. And an interesting fact that emerges from that is that your test scores, even early in childhood, like math test scores in particular, are very highly predictive of the probability to become an inventor. Kids who score in the top 10% of their third grade math class are much, much more likely to become inventors than kids who score at lower levels. But interestingly, that is predominantly true only for kids from high-income families who are non-minority and who are men, basically. So in other words, mm -hmm. even if you look among the set of kids who are doing really well in math in third grade, uh, characteristics like your gender, your race, and your parental income are highly predictive of the probability of becoming an inventor, showing you that this is not just about ability. The gaps emerge even conditional on ability. Yeah, you know, my initial reaction when I read the paper was was like, oh, that that's a reductive finding. Seeing the, these um, uh, these test scores lengthen that way, and then I looked at the size of the data set that mm -hmm. you're that you're referencing, and and I was very deeply impressed of how you publish all of the the data. You don't publish the raw data in no. this case because it's it, it it's sensitive, but the the data tables they're all 
on your website uh, straight away. Um, and so I was struck that uh, I, I don't think you're saying those tests are indicative of, yeah. of anything. They are just one of the publicly available um, options for you that show a pattern. That's right. I mean, I think they help build a case. That's the way I look at it. So tests by no means are a perfect measure of ability, right? We all know standardized tests, they capture something about ability, but they're not perfect measures of ability by any means. What's interesting is that I mentioned the data on third grade test scores. If you then look at tests at later ages, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and so on, you find that test scores at later ages start to explain more and more of the gaps in innovation that we're seeing between the rich and the poor, between blacks and whites. Uh, and the reason for that is essentially that lower income disadvantaged kids are steadily falling behind in school as they uh, get older. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about the third grade is it points to something that I think is referenced in, in some of your prior work is that what we're talking about in a certain sense is exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, that exposure in that early lifespan, mm -hmm. regardless of um, of background is in, influences outcomes much later in life. And that's exactly right. And so then that's the next part of the paper. So we start out by documenting these big gaps, show some evidence from test scores that they don't seem to be explained by differences in ability. Then we ask, okay, so what are they explained by? And so taking that more, you know, kind of positive approach, we find that the key determinant or one of the key determinants is differences in exposure. And what do we mean by exposure? In this context, we mean something very specific were you connected to an inventor while you were growing up, either in your family or through your parents' co-workers or through people in your neighborhood? This isn't just meeting an inventor one time, a, a casual encounter, or even at like a book signing or something like that. You're talking about uh, exposure over a period of time. We're th talking about something I think that's much more intensive than mm -hmm. that. We're talking about growing up in an environment where you're seeing science being uh, done, where you're maybe your role models are scientists, things like that. And so just to give you a little bit of a flavor of why we think it's that intensity of interaction that matters, what we show is that kids who grow up in areas that have a lot of innovation, like Silicon Valley, for example, are much more likely to become inventors themselves. But what's more is that even if you look at two kids who currently live in the same location, their probability of inventing, and in fact, the area in which they invent is greatly influenced by the area in which they grew up. So let me give you an example. Let's say you take two kids who are currently in Boston, and suppose one of them grew up in Silicon Valley, and one of them grew up in Minneapolis, which, as you might know, happens to have a lot of bio companies and medical device manufacturers in particular. So it turns out if you look at these two kids in Boston, the kid who grew up in Silicon Valley is much more likely to have a patent in computers, and the kid who grew up in Minneapolis is much more likely to have a patent in medical devices. And what, furthermore, it's not just true at the broad category level of biology versus computers. If you drill down, patents are classified into very fine technology classes. So semiconductors, amplifiers, antennas. You find that the kids who grew up in areas where people were inventing in amplifiers are much more likely to have a patent in amplifiers themselves, even if they're living somewhere totally different in adulthood. And if you grew up around people inventing in antennas, you have a patent, more likely to have a patent in antennas, but not in amplifiers. So it's very specific transmission, which really looks like it has to be an exposure effect rather than genetics, right? We don't think your genes allow you to invent an amplifier. I, I don't think anyone antennas. thinks the, the genetic effect there. But yeah. 
that must mean that as you as you establish distance from those disciplines, you're seeing a decay of that effect. Exactly. So you find a very high propensity to innovate in exactly this class that you were exposed to. But then if you go even a little bit away in terms of a very similar field, but not exactly the one you know that you were surrounded by when you grew up, you're much 10 times less likely to innovate in that field. So we're doing this interview, you know, on the campus of Stanford and uh, up and down this peninsula where the valley is. I can understand that effect. How localized are we talking about? If we go across the bridge to Oakland, do we see decays in that effect, even over short geography? Absolutely. So, you know, we don't have enough data in this particular study to show probability of inventing across very fine geographies. But from other work, our research group has done looking at earnings outcomes you see really sharp differences in outcomes even within a few miles. So you gave the example of going across the Bay Bridge. Kids who grow up in Oakland have dramatically different prospects from kids who grow up in San Francisco, for example, even controlling for their parents' income and family background. It really seems like environment matters. So it's natural to ask, not that this is a competition, but where are we doing well in the United States then in terms of this geography? And and alternatively, where are we... Where are we seeing low rates of the of, of this happening? Yeah, so you tend to see the lowest rates of innovation and upward mobility and, and earnings as well for kids who grow up in this much of the southeast. But there's some interesting exceptions to that. So for instance, Austin, Texas really stands out in terms of producing a lot of inventors. That's very consistent with what I was saying earlier. Austin is a hub of science and innovation. Kids who grow up there tend to become inventors at higher rates. More broadly, Silicon Valley tops the list in terms of, importantly, when I say location, this is not just where innovation is occurring. Everyone knows that there's a lot of innovation in Silicon Valley. This is saying kids who grow up in Silicon Valley are more likely to become inventors wherever they live in adulthood. Other places that are high on the list include places in the Northeast like Boston, but also some surprising places like Detroit. Detroit is interesting to us because in earnings outcomes, Detroit actually does not look very good. But in terms of innovation, Detroit has lots of kids who grow up to have patents. And we think that might have something to do with growing up around a lot of engineers and the auto industry and so forth. It's basically in the air, the idea of tinkering and inventing. This is fascinating because what you're pointing to is that there are legacies in these cities. There's histories in them that are really dictating for it, even, even though we tend to think, oh, 10 years ago is is ancient history in some ways. And some of your prior work on mobility um, uh, points to this, even with, with places like Atlanta having a, a history of, of segregation between neighborhoods mm-hmm. and that impacting the mobility between those cla- uh, between uh, different income levels. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I, let me just add one more layer of nuance that I think illustrates what you're saying about, uh, you know, the legacy of history and in the particular ways in which it, it operates. So we find that these exposure effects don't just vary across place, but they vary along gender-specific lines. So if girls grow up in a place where a lot of women are inventing in a particular technology, they are more likely to become inventors themselves. Whereas if they grow up in a place where men are patenting at higher rates, they're not influenced by that. Conversely, boys are highly influenced by the patent rates of men in their area, but not women. And those effects are large. We estimate that if uh, women were as exposed to female inventors while they were growing up as men are to male inventors, the gap in uh, the gender gap in innovation would fall by half. So currently, 18% of patents in the US go to women. 
um, we we estimate that that gap of you know eighty two percent for men, eighteen percent for women, would be shrunk in half simply if the exposure were more even in childhood. I, I mean, they all, it's also half the population. So if you're talking <laughs> in a substantial increase of generation of of innovation from that society, I imagine the economic boom would be untold in some way. That, that's exactly right. So we estimate that if you tally up all the lost Einsteins, in a sense, the kids who could have had highly impactful innovations from low-income families, from minorities, and female inventors, we estimate the total number of kids who are not coming through the pipeline. And our data suggests that we'd have four times as many inventors today if we had an equal representation of kids from these other backgrounds as we do of high-income white men. So, you know, we could potentially quadruple innovation by tapping into this pool. So as you well know, studies are wonderful, but studies in a vacuum go onto university library shelves. Mm -hmm. uh, there are policy implications here. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to see such a strong, what I occurred to me as a policy statement in your paper saying that potentially, if we're talking about making a, a tax cut, mm -hmm. we won't substantially increase innovation in this case. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that's right. So in the in the last part of the paper, which we haven't touched upon as much, we look at the careers of inventors. Uh, and we do that from the lens of trying to understand what the traditional approach economists would think of taking to increase innovation would do, which is cutting tax rates or increasing financial incentives in various ways. If you want people to do more of something, the usual economist way of thinking about it is pay them more to do it. Uh, and so the, the main finding there is that inventors, in particular the star inventors who have the most highly cited patents, currently earn quite high salaries. Their average annual salaries exceed $1 million a year over a 10 or 20 year period. So the people with the most highly cited patents, the, the inventions that are arguably transforming America and really advancing the economy, they're earning 20, 30 million over their careers, if not more. So if you now just step back, we work through a mathematical model in the paper, but the intuition is really simple. Suppose I were to raise tax rates by 5% or, or cut tax rates by 5%, and so I'm making $25 million instead of $26 million. It's hard to imagine that that's really going to influence the decision. There's no incentive there. Really. There's, you're, you're already making so much money. You're so successful. You know, Maybe it has some effect, but our, our calibration suggests that those effects are potentially likely to be small relative to this tapping into this untapped pool of lost Einsteins. And so that's how we reached that conclusion. A lot of this work is intuitive and builds on prior work mm -hmm. uh, across the field, but it goes back to the heart of it, which is this data set becoming available. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge data set. Mm -hmm. um, and it represents, it might represent what I what I see is, is more big data coming into economics. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how economics and economic policy mm -hmm. is being reshaped, if at yeah. all, by this emergence of, of new data sets. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I think this work is an illustration of what I see as the most important trend in social science over the past decade or so, which is the increasing use of big data to tackle social and economic policy questions, much as we hear all the time about uh, in the private sector, companies like Amazon and Google using large data sets to improve the products they offer. I think those types of data can be used to make better policy decisions and understand how the world works in social and economic level. Are some of those private data sets going to be available to public researchers like yourself? Yeah, there's hope going forward that through collaborations with companies, they'll never be publicly available for obvious reasons. 
but working collaboratively with these companies, one might be able to extract insights that can be used for social purposes. And so, you know, more broadly in our research team, we're using not just government data, but data from other sources uh, as well to, to try to tackle these types of questions. I mean, just to come back to something you raised earlier, the broader set of issues we work on is how we can improve the prospects of low-income kids in America. And so that those types of data sets that we work with cover the entire American population, basically. And we see that certain places in America, like Atlanta, which you mentioned earlier, have much worse prospects for low-income kids. And we're then able to, you know, the ultimate goal of all this is to understand, if you will, the recipe for generating better outcomes for low-income kids and sort of reviving the American dream in places where we don't see as good outcomes right now. And my last question, you've, you've spent a lot of time advising political candidates on both sides of the aisle about this. And uh, there's a feeling out in the public that we're moving away from evidence-based policy mm -hmm. right now or that it's being disregarded. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic <clears throat> about the use of data when it comes mm -hmm. to actual policy generation, given the response to some of your prior mm -hmm. work? I'm actually quite optimistic, and that might surprise you given what you hear in the media, especially at the, about federal politics at the, at the national level. And the reason I'm optimistic is a lot of what we're finding as we study these issues is that the key ingredients that matter for the American dream, that matter for in innovation, emerge at a very local level. So if you think about the conversation we've had, it's about specific places, about specific subgroups of people. And so that empowers local actors, mayors, college presidents, local nonprofits, foundations to actually be able to make a really meaningful difference in this space. And I found there's tremendous interest in that. And hopefully you can work alongside the federal government as well. But even independent of that, I think there's a lot we can do in our own communities to make a big difference on these issues. Raj Chetty, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. My pleasure. So that's it for another episode. For more information on Raj's work, please check out equality-of-opportunity.org. He posts all of his data and information online, and you can check out great non-technical summaries for yourself or the full PDF paper. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chan, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thanks for sticking with us through all of those Patreon changes. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, how you're going to be celebrating the holidays this year, or anything else you'd like to contact at Inquiring Show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. Indra will be back next week. See you then. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.